This week's episode of the Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin Show is brought to you by Audible, the only name you need to know if you are interested in downloading and listening to audiobooks. They have over 100,000 titles, including five that may be of particular interest to people listening to this podcast. That is Game of Thrones, A Clash of Kings, Storm of Swords, A Feast for Crows, and A Dance with Dragons. You know, now that I am at the end of this sentence, I realize I probably didn't have to list all of them. I can just tell you that they have the entire Game of Thrones series. That's right, you can finally read the Game of Thrones books and start calling them the A Song of Ice and Fire books. You love the Game of Thrones TV show. You've always wanted to dip your toe into reading them and getting them more of the backstory, more of the texture, more of the flavor. But you're afraid you don't want to carry around the big book. You don't want to buy one just yet. Here's how you can try it out. Here is what Audible and I are going to do for you. Go to audiblepodcast.com slash Jeff Rubin for a free 30-day trial to Audible and a free audiobook download and just make that audiobook download Game of Thrones. If you think the TV show is enough and you don't want to read the books, I've got someone who can convince you otherwise. And luckily, uh, she's going to be on the show right now. Welcome to the Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin Show, Game of Thrones 2 for 1 Spectacular. In just a little while, we are going to be hearing from one of my all-time favorite guests, David Peterson. He is back. He is, of course, the man who creates artificial but functioning languages for the Game of Thrones TV show. But first, right now, on the Skype of my phone, I am talking to Chelsea Monroe Castle, she is the chef behind the Inn at the Crossroads, the Game of Thrones food blog, as well as A Feast of Ice and Fire, the official cookbook of Game of Thrones. Welcome to the show, Chelsea. Hi, thanks for having me. Now, Chelsea, how, how did this project get started? Well, I always joke that the whole thing sort of got going because my co-author, Sarianne, and I were hungry one day, and we didn't know what to make for dinner, but we decided we would try lemon cakes for dessert. And things clearly got out of hand from there. And lemon cakes are, were uh, are a food that are in the books? Absolutely, yeah. It's uh, Sansa Stark's favorite dessert um, throughout the books. Now, is that a real food, too? I mean, it lemon cake, lemon-flavored cake, it would be. Right. You know, we have lemon pound cake and things like that. But you had decided to make it because it was Sansa's favorite snack. Exactly, yeah. And it it's sort of, I think that, taking it out of the realm of what we're used to really helps sort of connect it to the whole series of Game of Thrones. And so, you know, we looked for a modern version that really sort of fit what I imagined uh, lemon cakes were, and then also a historical version just for kicks. If they made it, you know, in Game of Thrones times. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's funny how many people, uh, you know, write in on the blog and they're like, well, you know spicy peppers wouldn't actually be allowed. And I'm like, well, George Martin said so. And since he made up this world, I think they're allowed. Yeah. So. There's dragons in the book and they're like, yeah, but they don't have peppers. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, George Martin lives in New Mexico. So, yes, they have peppers. And at this point when you're making the lemon cakes, uh, is the TV show started or is it just the books? It was just the books. It was right before the show kicked off. So it was, I think, early March or mid-March of 2011. 
I'm always excited when I meet someone that was into Game of Thrones before the TV show started. I'm always so impressed, you know? Like, <laughs> right. You, you guys were on it. You guys you guys knew there was this cool thing out there, and, and me and all these other latecomers, we're catching on now, but you guys, you knew it then. So how exciting was it when you saw the TV show? It was really cool. I mean, I, I had waited for, like, the two of the books. I'd waited for Feast for Crows and Dance with Dragons. Um you know, five, six years or whatever that wait was. Um, and so now, you know, waiting nine months or whatever it is for the new season of Game of Thrones is really, really not that difficult. Right, right. I don't really notice the food when I watch it on TV, but it's such a detail-oriented production. I have to assume um, that, that they follow what, what's written. Have you recognized specific dishes from the book on the show? Absolutely. Um and especially in season three, they've done a really great job. I think they've stepped up their food game. Um, I'm a little bit annoying to watch the show with because every time food's on the screen, I'm like, oh, look at the pie. Oh, it's a cake. What kind of cake is it? Like, and everyone else is like, shh, we're trying to hear what they're saying. And I'm like, but the cake. There were uh, poached pears. Um, looked very much like my poached pears, I must say. And I think the last episode, you know, they mentioned bowls of brown and things like that. So they actually have done a, a really dutiful job, especially this season, of doing the food right. It's great to see. Has there been a specific example of one you were looking for and then you saw it on the show and, and you knew that they had nailed it? I was hoping to see a little more of the lemon cakes. Um, have there been lemon like, cakes? Because that is one that stands out because it's mentioned a few times. It did. They had, um, when the Queen of Thorns met Sansa Stark in the gardens, it was like a couple episodes ago, I think mid season three somewhere um you know they they offered her lemon cakes but it was just sort of you sort of watched the blur of the plate as they passed it back and forth and you couldn't really see the cakes themselves um which is too bad i think a lot of people that have only watched the show and not read the books they're probably thinking the food what's the big deal they eat food on every show but if you read those books there is his he goes into such detail about what they're eating, and I think it's because, uh, you know, it tells you a lot about their culture and where they're from because there's a lot of different cultures and different regions uh, in, in this sprawling epic. Uh, and that's one of the things that I really liked about your blog is that it's organized by region, and it's easy to imagine that all these regions have different cuisines. So I'm wondering if we can go through these and you can kind of tell me just like what's characteristic of the food uh, in these different areas of Westeros. Absolutely. Westeros? I don't know how you say it. Westeros, yeah. Our approach with the whole thing, our approach was really sort of like a fictional locavore kind of thinking. So we took into account the, the culture, the climate, trade routes, um, and let all of that sort of determine what ingredients might be available. Because most of the descriptions in the books aren't that detailed. Sometimes they'll list, you know, sister stew. He lists all of the ingredients that go into it. And that's incredibly helpful because you can then make it piece by piece. But other times it'll just be pork pie. Um, and so it's tricky to try to think about, you know, is a pork pie in Winterfell going to be different from a pork pie in the South somewhere? Uh, and I think that they would. Um, so the breakdown regionally is roughly like our own world in some ways. So the north would be sort of northern European. Um, it's a lot of meats and preserved things, um, much more so on the wall, especially. 
um, where they have, you know, they're they're on much more of a budget. So they uh, they've got preserved meats, they've got dried beans, things like that. Winterfell obviously is a little bit richer, uh, to say the least. Um, it's more lavish. So, you know, you think about like whole roast oryx turning on the spit and, um, you know, they, they're rich enough and near enough to some of the northern ports that they can get goods from the south. And so that's why Sansa has enjoyed lemon cakes growing up is because they've had lemons brought up from the warmer regions. And are you extrapolating that based on the maps and what's been said in the books, or is that mentioned anywhere? It's mostly extrapolation. I buy it. Coming it, up, it fits with what we know. Yeah, yeah. And it's actually, the food was relatively easy to do that with. I've started doing um, home brewing for Game of Thrones brews, no. And that's actually a lot more difficult to sort out because you're like, well, would they have juniper or not? It's really nerdy. So, Super. yeah, that's when this got nerdy. Not, yeah. when, not when you were looking at the trade routes to determine how Sansa no, had No, no, definitely not then. <laughs> so what's like, what's a, first of all, the food at the wall. I don't, like, the wall sounds like a miserable place to live. I've never read or seen uh, anything about the wall that made me want to eat what they are eating? Is there anything good that came from the wall? Any any good dishes that they could theoretically be eating there? I think so. They're uh, they have pork pie, which is a personal favorite, um, mm-hmm. a favorite in our house. And I'm gonna I'm on your websites, and your website has uh, and this is I think one of the great parts about it. You have the quote like where this came up in the book. So I'm I'm gonna read some of these we go through just so I, I think it's interesting. Yeah, absolutely. For instance, the pork pie came up. Uh, apparently, according to you, it was uh, said by Sam in A Clash of Kings. Sam says, if I could fly, I'd be back at Castle Black eating a pork pie. And I love that quote because it's it really conveys, like, they're out in the cold, they're freezing, they're miserable, and all he really wants to do is be inside somewhere warm eating. Um, and I think that that really helps you feel a little bit of what he's feeling, um, sort of sympathize. Every time I go out in the winter now, I think, if I just make it back to Castle Black, I can have my pork pie. <laughs> I hate winter. <laughs> so what else uh, What else from the wall or Winterfell? What, what was some of your favorite dishes? In Dance with the Dragons, actually, they do um, sort of a survey of... Now, this is a minor food spoiler for a Dance with Dragons. I know. We're going to spoil some of the things they're going to be eating in Book 5. <laughs> if you haven't read Book 5 and don't want to know... What they consume, you might want you might want to fast forward a little. You'd be surprised that uh, we've actually had a couple people object because it'll be you know so and so ate sisters stew and they're like whoa whoa I thought so and so was dead I can't believe you just spoiled it for me. We're not gonna spoil. We're not gonna spoil just to reassure you. We're not gonna spoil any plot points or character stuff from any no. of the upcoming books that haven't been made into the TV show yet. But we might discuss what people eat. Absolutely. So, I'm sorry, I cut you off. What was the dish from A Dance with Dragons? So, in Dance, they actually go through the food stores at Castle Black, and it's this huge long list of, like, preserved meats and things that are frozen and everything else. And the one that really stuck with me was um, a haunch of venison preserved in honey. So you just imagine this giant, like, venison leg in a barrel of honey. Like, that's two of my favorite things combined. And that, to me, just sounds delicious. Did you make it? Not yet. Um, it, as soon as I find an entire haunch of venison, uh, it's probably on the list. But 
There are a lot of things on the list. It's it's I'm down to the weirder stuff now. I think yeah, tomorrow I, is I a, bet you got uh, some of the obvious ones. Yeah, a fish stew with frog legs. I think is on the docket for tomorrow. Really? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> how often do you make one of these dishes? Like, how many are there? How many have you done? And how often do you work on that list? I try to post something at least once a week. Um, it's I've done over I think three hundred recipes at this point. Um, there are about a hundred in the cookbook, um, and there are still a lot of dishes on the list. But again, they're they're the kind of weird ones. They're the snails and butter and garlic and frogs' legs and things like that. Right, right. Uh, not so much the you know chowder and meat stews and pies and things like that. All right, so let's let's keep moving through Westeros here. Let's talk about King's Landing. Sure. Um, King's Landing is cool because it's really a trading hub. So they get sort of citrus fruits up from Dorne in the south. Um, they get, when they're not at war, presumably, um, lots of fruits and grains and things like that from the Reach and High Garden and places like that. But they can also get things brought down um, from the north. And so, you know, I play with that a little bit. I think I did, um, like, iced milk. Um, you know, you think, where would they get the ice? Well, they would probably ship it down from the north. Um, and that might seem a little crazy, but historically, things were done like that. Um, you know, in colonial America, they had ice houses, and they would pack them full of ice in the winter, and then be able to have access to ice throughout the year to cool things and so on. So it's, it's kind of quirky. I've discovered a lot about food history just throughout the course of researching the book. Yeah, this is probably something I should have asked in the first place, but is that what you do professionally? Are you a chef? No, I'm not. I kind of do this now. Um, and I run a couple of other blogs as well. But uh, I, have, I was a classical studies major, so I've got the history element in there. But I, uh, I was actually a picky eater growing up, and I seem to have firmly kicked that habit now. Yeah, you're cooking frog legs tomorrow. Night. I know. I that, that's like as far as you can go. So this is your full-time job. What are the other blogs you run? I run one for other fictional food. It's called Food Through the Pages. Um, and that's anything that I come across that looks good. Um, so like The Lies of Locke Lamora is one of my favorite series for incredibly good-sounding food. Um, but also just any cool foods I find in historical cookbooks, because I browse through a lot of those looking for Game of Thrones things. Um, and it's really fun to rediscover old foods that have kind of gone by the wayside. Like what? One of my favorites is called Apple Snow, and it's super beaten egg whites with sugar and applesauce mixed in. And so it ends up being this really light, fluff, the apple-flavored kind of meringue, almost. Um, and it's really bizarre, but really tasty. So I cut you off. You were, you were saying something else you do. Um, I also have the, the brewing blog that I mentioned, Game of Brews. So how do you make a Game of Thrones beer? Like, what does George R. R. Martin tell us about the, the alcohol in their world? Not a whole lot. It'll usually have to do with the strength. So, you know, Tormund Giantsbane, North of the Wall, has an incredibly potent mead. And so you're like, okay, well, it's a mead with really high alcohol content. It doesn't help you much. But if you think about, you know, if a wildling is brewing, they're not going to have 
all these exotic spices and herbs and things that you'd get wherever Daenerys is burning down cities. Um, but you would have maybe juniper or spruce or sort of northern European kind of ingredients. And so I, I think about it again in terms of location and trade and things like that. And what's your favorite dish from King's Landing? Let's bring it back to King's Landing. King's Landing. Um, the Bowls of Brown is not my favorite in terms of tasty to eat, but it was a lot of fun to make. What is um, that? That's the, uh, in the books, it's, there are these pot shops, they're called, and they just kind of have a giant kettle of stew going, and they periodically toss oh, new things yeah. in. That was just said on the episode that I saw last night. I think it was, uh, people might have seen another one by the time they hear this. Um, but Gendry mentions it to Melisandre, I think, when they're talking. He says that's what he used to eat in Flea Bottom. Exactly. Yep, that's the one. Um, so that sounds bad. I mean, they're using that to describe, like, completely inedible food. And I, I think what he said on the show is that uh, they, they told themselves it was chicken, but that it was, they knew it wasn't chicken. So when you yeah. make it, what is it? Um, there's a recipe in the cookbook for it, and it's, it's kind of like a, a party game. We added, um, I think, chicken, a game hen, like some short ribs, just kind of a, a conglomeration of different meats, and then stewed it for like eight to ten hours in a crock pot. Um, and it's kind of interesting, because eventually, like, the meat just sort of falls off the bones, um... If you cook it long enough, the bones sometimes start to disintegrate. Like the, the game hen that we put in just kind of disappeared. Like there was no more game hen. There was just more meat in the pot. And so it's kind of interesting to see that, like, you could tell probably whether it was white or dark meat, but probably not more, much more than that. Um, You're making it sound way better than Gendry did. It's true. No, it. Uh, the, I don't think there's any pigeon or somebody that was a victim of the King's Landing mob or whatever. You know, none of that went into ours, so that's good. There's no cat. Now, what about the South? This is the area that includes the Iron Islands, where the Greyjoys are from. There's River Run. The Greyjoys have terrible food. I don't think they make anything that's good. It's all described as, you know, spiceless goat and, like, thin gruels and gross stuff like that. Um... Which is not that surprising, because they, they don't sew, so they don't really do food. They're not foodies. Um, do, they but, eat, do they eat fish? Because you know, they worship the sea, so I feel like they either eat a heavy, lot of fish yeah. or they eat no fish. You know, kind of like you don't eat cows in India. Right. No, they eat lots of fish. Um, fish stew, uh, fish pie, crab pie, crab stew, etc. Um, so here's what they say about the seafood stew. Uh, in, uh, what's the fourth book? Dance, no. Feast for Crows. Feast for Crows, Feast for Crows. A Feast for Crows, Feast, right there in the title. Uh, the food was plain but very good. There were loaves of crusty bread, still warm from the oven, crocks of fresh churned butter, honey from the Septree's hives, and a thick stew of crabs, mussels, and at least three different kinds of fish. Septon Maribald and Sir Heil drank the mead the brothers made and pronounced it excellent. Well, I'm going to leave the character names out just so no one knows who's still alive in this book. Uh, but two characters contended themselves with more sweet cider. I love that one. Yeah, it's, uh, 
And that's one of the great examples where he actually gives you a whole meal. So if you're feeling a little ambitious, you know, you can make the bread, have the butter, the honey, uh, even the mead and cider, along with the fish stew. And it's just this wonderful experience. Um, and it's very much like stepping into that setting. Now, all these dishes, they can't all come out good. And I'm not even talking about your cooking here, just like... I don't think George R. R. Martin was considering if it would actually be good food. Surely some of these are, are terrible. Oh, I think so, yeah. Um, how, how many of them a, are good? How many of them would you make again just to enjoy the food? Well, for the blog, um, I never post anything that I'm not happy with. So throughout the process that nobody sees, I tend to have a fair amount of flops, um, especially if I'm trying a historical recipe, um, because I'm also sort of trying to test it out in terms of proportions because medieval recipes are usually like you know there's one that is essentially take your goat and slit its throat and then cook it until it's done like that's not a recipe <laughs> like um it's and so a friday it's, night exactly you know that's that's like a barbecue sure um but and so it's tricky sometimes to take the original historical recipes and tweak them into something that works. And it takes a couple tries sometimes to get the proportions for things right. George R. R. Martin wrote the introduction for your cookbook, which is incredible. It's so amazing. How, how did that come about? We, uh, we actually worked with his editor um, and the same publisher. And so it's all a part of the giant, ever-growing Game of Thrones family. And we didn't actually know that he was going to write the introduction. We thought... You know, he would write, like, a little blurb on the first page that was basically like, I'm George Martin, and I approve this cookbook. Um, but it's several pages, and he really goes into a fair amount of detail about cooking and his own food experiences. And it's really, you know, we're honored <laughs> to have um, had him do that for us. It was great. I was surprised that he mentions in the introduction that he can't cook. I know, that was funny. Considering the depth of food talk in the novels, did that surprise you too? It did. Um, but, you know, what's kind of interesting is I, I'm terrible at making up food descriptions. Um, and I've gotten to the point with the, the descriptions of everything that I cook where some days by the time I've written it all out, tested it and cooked it and photographed it, I'm just like, I don't know what to say. It's good. Try it yourself. Eh. And so I, I wonder if there's some correlation, you know, those who cook maybe can't describe. or It's true for me, at least. I think it's probably not true for many, many chefs. Even though he can't cook or he says he can't cook, you know, he's the architect behind all these recipes. So maybe, I'm just putting this out there, maybe he's a better cook than he thinks he is because he's coming up with all these great combinations, these ingredients to put together. Is that possible? Is that how cooking works? I, I think that could be. He just hasn't grown into his own as a sh cook yet, so I like to think that. Did you ever have a chance to uh, meet him? Absolutely. We uh, we actually took a basket of food goodies to him at uh, his first stop on the signing tour for Dance with Dragons um, in 2011, um, which was really fun. So these are like Game of Game of Thrones foods you made for him? Absolutely, yeah. So what? I don't know why. I'm just asking to make sure. It'd be weird if you didn't. So what do you serve George R. R. Martin? What dishes from Game of Thrones? Um, I think in that basket we brought him lemon cakes, obviously. Mm -hmm. Potted hair, pork pies, 
Let's see, a couple of other things, maybe. What is potted hair? How do you pot a hair? Potted hair, I actually really liked. I've been meaning to try it again. It's basically, you can pot any kind of meat, um, but potted hair in particular is shredded rabbit meat with spices and seasonings all mixed in. And you put it into a jar, and then you seal the top with clarified butter, which uh, is pretty delicious. <laughs> you should seal every dish with clarified butter. That sounds like a great just sprinkle on top of every dish. The clarified butter cookbook. It could be next. Let's keep moving <laughs> through the world. We talked about the North, the South, King's Landing. What do we miss? Dorn. There's a whole section about Dorn. Dorn is great, yeah. We haven't seen a whole lot of in the TV show yet, and it's not even in the book that much. Um, it's certainly alluded to. It's, it's sort of a desert land in the South. Yes, yeah. And I'm hoping, I'm actually looking forward, hopefully, to see a bit more of it in uh, season four, because I really like Dorn. I think it's cool. Um, what do they eat there? It's sort of, I describe it as kind of like a Northern African kind of, Middle Eastern sort of fusion um, with a little bit of New Mexico thrown in, I think, because George can't help himself. So it's a lot of spicy dishes, very, very spicy, um, which I struggle with sometimes. I have to have designated eaters for some of those dishes because I'm a spice wimp. So what's some of the stuff you've made from Dorn? Some of the stuff from Dorn is a snake with a spicy sauce. Um, we cooked a rattlesnake for that one. Wow. Which is pretty hardcore. But, but Is it difficult to obtain a rattles, rattlesnake meat? Did you cook a whole rattlesnake? I don't even... What does that look like? I know it's a thing people do. It's not even... Like, it's... it's People do this in America. It's not even, like, that exotic. It's exotic, but it's not like... Um, you know, they do it in America. Right. I don't know anything about it. Do you, do you get a snake from the grocery store? What, how did that work? Well, we... Uh, I live in Boston, and, and here we're lucky enough to have a really great specialty food store called Savinor's. And they can get you just about any kind of meat. And they happened to have packaged rattlesnake one day when we went in. And we thought, okay, let's do this. Um, and it was really fun to have tried. But, and the sauce is wonderful. But in the end, I think it actually has, it's not really worth the effort because of all the bones. Mm. It's kind of like eating a fish that hasn't been deboned at all. I mean, it's just, you think about the number of ribs in a snake, like, it, mm. so, anyone who's squeamish, I recommend the sauce, but you don't necessarily need to go, you know. Full rattlesnake. Full, full rattlesnake, no. <laughs> uh, what about this dish, Simple Dornish Fare? Let me read the excerpt about this one. This one's also from A Feast for Crows. When the sun set, the air grew, I'm going to get a job doing like the audiobook version of A Feast for Crows, a new version I like narr it. narrated by me. <laughs> when the sun set, the air grew cool, and the children went inside in search of supper. Still the prince remained beneath his orange trees, looking out over the pools and the sea beyond. A serving man brought him a bowl of purple olives with flatbread, cheese, and chickpea paste. He ate a bit of it and drank a cup of the sweet, heavy, strong wine that he loved. So good. <laughs> yeah. So what does that tell you? What does the food tell you about the people? Um, I think that it's, you could say that they're sort of simple at first glance. Um, but, you know, the more you read about them and the more you learn about them, I think that they have a lot more going on underneath. Um, something like that dish, though, is just a really nice sort of light lunch. Um, just a little snack here and there kind of a deal. And that's how the prince was eating it, too. Yeah. 
Uh, what about, I think, there's one more left, and it's, it's a big one. It's the area across the Narrow Sea uh, where the Dothraki live, the Dothraki Sea. Yeah. And that's actually, uh, I think, most of the dishes that are on the list of things that we can't make are from that region. So what's on uh, the list of things you can't make? Because you made rattlesnake. It's true. We could get rattlesnake legally. Um, swan is on the list because even though you can hunt it some places, I don't think you can hunt it in Massachusetts, um, we could order one, but it would be like 900 bucks. It's $900 to order a dead swan? Well, funny that you say dead swan because one place I looked at, the small print was that it comes live to your door and very, very angry, presumably. <laughs> Do they, like, kill it at your door? Is that, like, a loophole in the law? I have no idea. But I was just like, nope, nope, that's going on the list. I like that you looked into it, though. Absolutely. I looked into uh, renting, like, doves to do the doves in a fake pie thing, but that's too expensive, too. But yeah, I could see that. Yeah. <laughs> I'll go net some pigeons or something. A lot of dog. I think there's a lot of dogs being Exactly, yeah. And there's a lot of dog, and there's a lot of horse, because they're the Dothraki. Can't we eat horse now? Isn't that legal? I think it's, it's legal to eat, but there are no approved horse slaughter farms in the u.s <laughs> it's like weed in washington like where it's legal <laughs> but like yeah it's it's kind of tricky and it's also you know americans for the most part really frown on the idea of eating horse but it's it's interesting i think that page on the blog the things that we won't make or can't make has gotten the most reader feedback because people would be like oh well i live in quebec why wouldn't you make horse and then we have to explain that you know we would if we could, but we can't get it because it's not legal here. And then they'll be like, that's crazy. It should be. Um, yeah, it's like, why do we draw the line at horse? It's, I, mean, I guess we don't anymore. But I do, I do remember just when that was news and, like, I thought it was weird because the government was like, everything's fine. Nobody panic. It's just eating horses is legal now. Not a big deal. It's just you can right. eat horses now. So <laughs> go about your normal business. And go buy some furniture at Ikea. You'll be all set. But it's really no weirder than, you know, eating um, a cow or a chicken or whatever. It's not really. Um, you know, horses are sort of a, a quirky situation because we don't really keep cows to, like, ride and as right. kind of pseudo-pets. Um, I mean, they're not quite as much pets necessarily as, like, dogs. Because dogs are pretty much solid pet category, whereas horses are, tend to be sort of working animals. We like horses in America, but we don't like them like the Dothraki like them. No, we do not. No. The Dothraki would eat them, though. So so if, if the Dothraki can eat horses, maybe we can too, America. It's true. That uh, probably is not a very successful political campaign, though. <laughs> it might be very successful. I don't see that taking <laughs> off on the internet. So, um, so what, what do they cook, the Dothraki? Um, they have a lot of goat. I had one goat recipe that I've been meaning to revisit to get a better picture because some of the early pictures in the history of the blog sort of are cringeworthy to me because they're not up to the most recent quality. How, did you buy a nice camera just to take pictures for the food? Absolutely. It makes a big yeah. difference, yeah. It does. And the Dothraki, you know, they're a nomadic people. Like, they don't, they, I imagine they don't have ovens. They don't have, you know, a lot of these things that you might use for basic food preparation. Does that affect what they eat? It does. Um, I think you get a lot more things cooked sort of over bonfires. Um, and in a weird way, I think that 
they're sort of similar in their cooking methods to maybe the wildlings because they're all sort of nomadic. They sort of cook what they can get when they can get it. Um, and we actually, a group of friends and I had uh, an amazing sort of wildling experience where we got a haunch of goat and we cooked it over a bonfire in my parents' backyard. Um, and it was just so fun because it's, you know, you've got this roaring fire and the smell of this roasting meat and it's turning and like hissing and all the fat spilling down into the coals and it just smelled so good. And we took it off the fire and just kind of all crouched around it and pulled it apart and just sat and ate it. You know, we didn't take it inside and carve it and put it on plates or anything. Um, and that is one of my favorite sort of experiential food moments for the blog. Is that the dish that was the most fun to prepare? I think it was, actually. And I wouldn't have expected it because there wasn't really much preparation. You know, we had like a a lean-to kind of haphazardly built with sticks and, and duct tape, I think. Um, and somehow it managed to not fall over and dump the meat into the fire. Um, was it good? It was delicious. It was so good. <laughs> was there a dish uh, that from your research that maybe something more practical you tried and have now incorporated into your regular diet? Absolutely. A lot of it actually. Um, it's sort of sad that I, because I'm still trying to come up with new dishes, I don't necessarily have all the time I'd like to revisit some of the old favorites. Um, but the mulled wine is a staple in our house all winter long. Um, every time anybody is coming over or not, we'll be like, oh, we're all home tonight? Excellent. Let's mull some wine. And this is the Old Bears wine? Yeah. Yeah. Let me read this quote. I noticed this one earlier. Oh, please do. So good. The old bear was particular. This is from a Clash of Kings. So this is, and the old bear. So this is something we've already seen. I think this is the first yep. one um, that people who've only watched the TV show would recognize too. So the old bear, who was the commander of the Night's Watch, uh, the old bear was particular about. That was me talking. That's not how it was written. George Martin was like, "So the old bear." All right. Here's what it is. The old bear was particular about his hot-spiced wine. So much cinnamon and so much nutmeg and so much honey, not a drop more. Raisins and nuts and dried berries, but no lemon. That was the rankest sort of Southron hearsay. Uh, that sounds amazing. Yeah, it's so good. Um, and it there's really nothing like it to take the chill off. It's so good. <laughs> What's going on there? What's making that work? The raisins. That sounds interesting. It's quirky. Um, there are two versions in the cookbook. Um, and I think one of them's on the blog also, just cause it's, it's too good to not share with everyone. Um, but the, uh, mulling the wine makes it hot, which listeners may or may not know. So it's, yeah, I love, I love mold wine. Like already. Yeah. I'm like you're, you're throwing some dried berries in there. That sounds good. And the old bear, He's like the kind of character who I would trust his mold wine taste. You know, he's up there on the wall. Like, if anyone knows what goes in a good mold wine, it's got to be that guy. I think so, yeah. Um, and so the one version is as described. You know, it's it's got cinnamon. It's got nutmeg. It's got the, the fruit and the nuts and things like that. Um, and then there's also a southern version um, where... It does include lemon, uh, citrus of some sort. Um, I think we use orange juice. Um, and that's also very good. And they're very different versions, 
but I don't know that I have a favorite. Um, and that's one thing that's really interesting is, you know, despite having made two versions of almost everything, oftentimes I like them both equally. They'll be very, very different, but, and very different flavor profiles often between the historical version and the modern. But usually they're both really very good. Is there a dish that less ambitious cooks, let's say me, could try to, you know, just dip their toe into the world of Game of Thrones cooking. I think the honey chicken is an awesome beginner dish. Um, it To a, a novice cook, it might seem a little scary to do an entire roast chicken, but it's really very easy. You know, you just, you put a little butter on there, you sprinkle a little salt, you roast it, uh, it does its thing in the oven, you don't really need to worry about it. Um, and you just cook up a sauce on the stove top, and and this is this is the honeyed chicken. Yeah, may I read? Uh, I, I love reading these. Just the the part from the book that that this is drawn from. Absolutely, it's making me hungry. But please go ahead. I know, me too. Well, <laughs> first line: hungry again? He asked. There was still half a honeyed chicken in the center of the table. John reached out to tear off a leg, then had a better idea. He knifed the bird whole and let the carcass slide to the floor between his legs. Ghost ripped into it in savage silence. And that is from the first book, A Game of Thrones. Yep. We're going to have to go soon because I'm just getting hungry. <laughs> uh, so l- let me just put this last this last uh, challenge to you. Finale's coming up. Going to be a lot of Game of Thrones parties going on. I- is there something uh, you suggest that people can make, some sort of theme dish that people can bring to a Game of Thrones party? Well, I actually, one thing that I really strongly suggest for Game of Thrones parties and food is making it a potluck. You sound like you've been asked this question before. I have. Um, <laughs> I actually, I wrote a party planning book, ebook too, because it's, I'm just brimming over with ideas. Um, but a potluck. Well, George, George R. Martin's not, there's no shortage of material to work with. It no, it's like. so true. And it's, it's, I'm going to mine it for all I can. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, for a potluck, if you say, you know, person one, makes an appetizer, person two makes a main course, person three brings something to drink, person four makes a dessert, then nobody's really swamped with having to make a huge feast themselves, but you still get a lot of interesting different dishes, and so you end up having a feast without the nightmare and headache of having to cook for two days. The ebook is sort of decoration ideas, um, some party games, things like that, how to make invitations. I'm a big fan of sending like actual physical invitations to things um, rather than just sort of sending out a mass Facebook invitation. Because I think the atmosphere of a party can really start with an invitation. So, you know, you can make like a sort of aged paper scroll with, you know, raven feathers as though it's been dropped off by a raven. Um, sort of like Game of Thrones, Harry Potter crossover or something. Oh, that's fun. Yeah. But but what about dishes to bring to the party? Dishes to bring to the party. I think stuffed grape leaves are good. That's Dornish. The Dornish actually do a really good job of appetizers because they've got like the hummus and the flatbread and olives and stuffed grape leaves and things like that. Um, desserts. Nobody ever says no to desserts. That's my personal favorite from all of the cooking. It's always the desserts. Which which is your favorite dessert? It's the medieval Arya's tarts. And it's sort of like a 
a fried shortbread wafer that's loaded up with this boiled down wine sauce with dried fruits and things in it. And it's like heavily sort of Christmas spice. So cinnamon, nutmeg, things like that. It's so good. I can't make them unless we have extra people coming over for a party because I'll sit down and eat them until I make myself sick. I just can't, I have no self-control when it comes to this dessert. I love Game of Thrones, and I love how seriously you are taking it here and the depth of your research. And it's exciting to see that no matter how deep you go, you know, uh, the work supports it and actually invites you to keep digging deeper. Absolutely. Um, I, I don't think that I will ever get tired of sort of looking at the food descriptions in Game of Thrones. And it's actually, I think, enriched other reading as well. I'm always on the lookout now for food in whatever I'm reading. Um, I think I get a little neurotic about it, probably. But Does anyone do it like George R. R. Martin, though? Yes and no. I mean, not, not sort of the high medieval style, I think, that he does. But um, I really can't say enough good about Scott Lynch's Lies of Locke Lamora's series. Um, the food in that is just amazing. It's like, you, you think it's fun to read George Martin food descriptions. Give one of those a crack, because it's like heaping feast tables of impossible food that I would eat every piece of. It's very good. And where can people find these recipes online? And what, let's remind them what the name of that cookbook is. The blog is inatthecrossroads.com. And the cookbook is A Feast of Ice and Fire. And there's the party planning ebook, And there's the other blogs. What were the names of the other blogs? The other blogs are Game of Brews, which is the brewing blog. Um, and my other fictional food blog is Food Through the Pages. And there's a link to the party planning ebook on In at the Crossroads. Well, Chelsea, I'm really hungry, so I have to go. <laughs> Sounds good. Uh, Chelsea, thank you so much uh, for talking about this. I, I-, I got to try some of these. You sound amazing. Thanks so much for having me. I hope you do. Let me know what you try. I certainly will. But before I can do that, I've got one more guest I've got to talk to. One of my all-time favorite Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin Show guests has returned on the skype phone, it is David Peterson, the linguist who constructs artificial languages for Game of Thrones. Welcome back to the show, David. Thanks for having me. Happy to be back. Now, in your first appearance, we talked a lot about the nuts and bolts of how you go about constructing these artificial languages. And that was way back in episode 30, which is, of course, available on Jeff Rubin, JeffRubinShow.com. But today... We are here to talk about the new language that has been introduced in the new season, season three, uh, High Valerian. <laughs> it's been fun so far. So, again, just to catch people up with where we are, uh, last time, you know, in addition to the basics, we covered Dothraki, which was the language that was in the first two seasons that was spoken by Cal Drogo and the Dothraki people. But this season, and correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think we've heard any Dothraki. Uh, not a single word yet, but I promise you there will be Dothraki before the season is up. Ooh. Little bit. Little bit. It's kind of, am- it's kind of amusing how it comes in. You'll see. I think it's, in fact, I think it actually might be the, the episode that's coming up this Sunday. I don't know when this is going to air. So this, It'll be I after might be Sunday. About but, uh... After Sunday. Okay. So it might have been. You might have already heard it. I might have sounded like an idiot when I said there was no Dothraki at the season because it was last week. But there's going to be a little bit of Dothraki. But the primary artificial language we've been hearing 
is High Valerian, uh, which was yep. spoken by Daenerys to the Unsullied, uh, her army of former slaves. Uh, Melisandre spoke a little bit. So mm-hmm. at what point did you know that you were going to create uh, another new language for the show? Well, the funny thing is I had uh, an idea that I might do it, like all the way from the very beginning, uh, once I started going on the uh, the Westeros farms and seeing that everybody was not very, really, really very excited about Dothraki, but they were excited about the prospect of High Valyrian possibly becoming a language. So I thought, Wait, oh, who, who wasn't excited about the Dothraki? Oh, everybody. Come on, man. Everybody was like, oh, Dothraki, yeah, that's, that's cool. But uh, so are you going to do High Valyrian? I was like, wow, I don't know. <laughs> so I, I had an idea that it might come into play. Uh, but I, I, I don't. I didn't actually hear that I was going to be doing it until this is kind of interesting. I was doing a a little a show for CNN's The Next List, and they were you know doing interview bits with me, and they were asking me you know if I was going to be doing something new in season three. And I said, well, I don't know. We haven't discussed that yet. And he says, well, uh, are you going to be doing High Valyrian? I was like, well, I mean, you know, this is like way pre-discussion. I'm like, I don't know anything about that. He says, well, we were interviewing Dave and Dan, and they said you would be. I was like, wow, okay. <laughs> I guess I am. Dave and Dan, uh, who run the show. Yeah, yeah, uh, David David Benioff and Dan Weiss. Um, and, yeah, so they actually do talk about that uh, in that little episode of The Next List, but uh, that was before I was even contracted to do that. So uh, that was when I heard about it, and so I started putting stuff together at that point. And Dothraki, you know... It's very clear there's a Dothraki people who are speaking the language Dothraki, and they're a very mm-hmm. unique culture even in the world of Game of Thrones. But, like, there's no Valerians on screen. It's kind of an ancient language in the world of Game of Thrones, which I think means, and correct me if I'm wrong, that you have a little more work to do, but also that your role is a little more important. Uh, yeah, actually, there was, uh, there was like, virtually none of it uh, was in the books. There was very little just mainly just a Valar Mohulis and Valar Dohairis. Which is the phrase that, um, God, what is his name? I don't even think I can pronounce his name when I know it. But the face-changing assassin, he gives the coin to... Jaquen. Uh, Jaquen. Yeah. That's one of the names that I learned how to pronounce after I saw the show. Jaquen <laughs> gives the coin to uh, Arya at the end of last season, and he says the key right. word to say, the magic password is Valar Margolis? Yes. <laughs> and that's all yeah, you had to go on. Yeah, that and, and then the, the response, which is Valor O'Hairi. So that was all I had to go on. But um, it's kind of a bizarre little linguistic situation. So High Valerian proper is kind of supposed to be a dead language. And it's supposed to have given birth to several other languages in the region, the languages of the free cities. Um, but at the same time, even though the Valerian Empire, where that language was spoken, is gone, the language still exists. So there are still people that speak High Valyrian, uh, maybe just not necessarily as their first language. Uh, and in fact, the, the, the nearest, um, nearest analogy that I could come up with is kind of comparing uh, Arabic as it exists now uh, around, the, around the Middle East to um, modern standard or Quranic Arabic, which nobody really speaks, but everybody actually does kind of understand and speak. Uh, and everybody just calls it all Arabic. 
uh, but but clearly there are, there are distinctions there. I think that's kind of what Valerian. That's really what what I get from the whole Valerian situation. So it's like if you ask anybody, they'll all say, "Yeah, I speak Valerian." But it's like if you ask what specifically, it will probably be different from region to region and different from the original language, the original High Valerian. And where, like in the lore of the book, in the lore of you know a Song of Ice and Fire, mm-hmm. where does Valerian come from? What was Valeria? Okay, yeah, so Valerian was the language of the Valerian Empire, which, which had its base uh, in the Valerian and Valerian Freehold, um, which was kind of uh, George R. R. Martin's analog to Rome and the Roman Empire. Uh, so this Valerian Empire was great. It lasted thousands of years, and it conquered uh, pretty much the, entire, uh, the entirety of Essos, including Slaver's Bay, which is where a lot of the Daenerys uh, action takes place um, in this season. And then at some point in time, there was this mysterious event called the Doom, and just referred to as the Doom, that happens to the Valyrian Freehold and kind of just uh, plunges it into nothingness and, and makes the whole land barren and, and, uh, and people can't even, sailors are afraid to even approach it. Um, and so then at that point, uh, the empire is done with, the free cities are all, are all founded, Slaver's Bay kind of becomes its own thing, uh, and really all that we have left is kind of like, like uh, the Valyrian language, uh, the people that are descended from the original Valyrians, and things like um, uh, Valyrian steel, for example, uh, which, is, you know, which you still see uh, even in, in Westeros. Um, so it's kind of like this mysterious uh, gaping crater uh, both in Essos and in the mythology at this point. Um, uh, we, we have yet for George R. R. Martin to expand on that and tell us exactly what happened way back then. And that's all in the books. Uh, right. It is not necessarily in the TV show. It's kind of implied to a degree, just be- the way Daenerys says that it was her first language. Like, you know that there's some history with her family. And right, language. right, right. So ha- do you try to bring that backstory into the way the language works? Uh, as nearly as I can without uh, treading on any areas that George R. R. Martin might want to fill in later uh, with future books. So it's actually been uh, quite a bit more difficult for Valyrian than for Dothraki, where, um, I mean, you know, the people actually exist and it's kind of clear what's going on with their whole situation. Um, so uh, personally, what I would like to talk to him about is uh, if, if I get the chance uh, Hopefully someday soon. I want to ask him what the heck the doom was, uh, <laughs> to see if I if, if if somehow this could be you know married into the language or have a way where it would make sense for it to be encoded in the language. But at present, I'm just staying away from that and trying to stick with the stuff because you know when it when it comes to a language, you know the human experience is always going to be the same. So I can always uh, make a lot of headway with that without dipping uh, too deeply into the cultural milieu there. Uh, so that's where I'm at right now. So how do you convey that backstory through the language? Like, what are some things you do with the words and the grammar? Well, like, for example, um, the uh, very notion of, like, if you think about the English word doom, uh, it's kind of, uh, it's very vague. You know, doom just means something bad, perhaps something that's coming or just somehow everything just is, is it, maybe people are dying, maybe, you know, it's just something is terrible. You don't really know what it means. So I think it's a, it's a really good word to use in the context of the series since it's vague. But then there's a question of where might this word have come from? Why is it called the doom? Does it make a specific reference 
to uh, an event that occurred. And if it did, you need to know what that event was. And, and maybe, you know, it would somehow be, uh, you know, lexically, etymologically related to what that word was. Um, kind of like, uh, you, you might think of like, um, I was trying to think of similar words like the, the deluge or the flood might uh, conjure the same images uh, in, in English, even though those words still have literal meanings. So um, that would be where I would want to go to. But again, it's like you have to know what the story is in order to see if that makes sense at all. And since those are just great big question marks right now, that's why I'm trying to kind of stick away from. No one on the show ever discusses the doom, but you still are, you're still like have to make that conscious decision not to address that word. Like, Well, yeah, and also because it's coming. I mean, you know, presuming, well, the show has been picked up for a fourth season and presuming that it keeps going after that. Seems uh, it, like a safe it's coming. Bet. Yeah, it, it's, it's coming. It, like, it's already been, it, it, it's referred to more explicitly uh, in book five. We actually see a, a lot more of this in book five, though we don't uh, get all the puzzle pieces just yet. So when we get to that point, you know, yeah, I'm going to have to deal with it. Uh, and so, so you'd rather deal with it now. You're just, yeah, absolutely. Planning. I mean, yeah, I guess that's no. what you have to do with a language. Yeah. Because it just takes too much time, uh, to, to really come up with something that's, uh, that's authentic and faithful to everything. I want to spend as much time with it as possible and not have, you know, not have to be coining all this stuff on the spot. Is there as much Valerian as there is Dothraki? Uh, as far as in words, you like the dictionary. Oh, okay. Yeah. No, uh, there's, there's not, there's just hasn't been enough time. Let's see where we're at right now. I just coined a new word today. Uh, what was the word? Uh, it was the word for sun that I, I coined based on my, uh, my 3000th Twitter follower whose name is Tracy two E's. And so then the, the word for sun in high Valyrian, not, not sun in the sky, but you know, offspring is, um, Tracy. <laughs> Whoa. Did you, did you tell her that? Bet I did. Yeah. Wow. Cool. What an honor. You yeah. know, David, you, you've been on this show four times. Maybe like, what do you think like Jeff Rubin could mean? Ah, oh, dear. Okay. Uh, let's see. Well, Jeff could work. No, wait, no, Jeff wouldn't work in high Valyrian. I'm sorry. There's no F. Um, but Ruben, Ruben, yes, there is, uh, there's potential there. All right. Ruben. I just want to plant that thought. I'm mm. not going to ask. I just want to plant the thought in your head. Uh, so that's all right. No, no, no. We, you know, whenever I need to come up with a new word and I decide I actually need a new root for something, when it comes to the point where you're actually coining a root and you're not just uh, building off of some other word, you know, at that point it's just like, well, how do you want it to sound? And so, uh, yes, yes, Reuben could work. <laughs> Are there any other Easter eggs? You know, the first time you were on the show, you talked about um, how the one that I always remember is the word in Dothraki for disappointment is lost, I believe. Is that correct? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Are there any Easter eggs like that within Valerian? Well, let's see. Well, now there's Tracy, but let me let me take a look here. I, I got my old dictionary open here. Uh, and I'm imagining the- you like blowing the dust off a tome, <laughs> like Grandmaster Picel. Oh dear, it's it's uh, yeah, it's actually blowing the dust off my monitor, which desperately needs cleaning. Uh, but uh, oh, I was going to say I, I'm at uh, 650 words. Oh, there's here's one. I I knew I needed a word for chain, and so for the the, the first thing that came to my mind was. Um, 
you know, I was a, I was a big fan, well, of the Castlevania series in general, awesome, awesome. but uh, of Simon's Quest. Wow, really? Oh, God, I loved that. I, I, I must have just played that over and over and over again. I thought Simon's Quest was kind of the black sheep of the Castlevania it's family. The most, well, I, it is the most different. It is the most different. It's, yeah, it's a difficult, difficult game. It's one of those NES games where uh, there's a lot to do, but not a whole ton of destruction. Uh, instruction. Oh, yeah. And maybe the ambition of the game overreaches the technical capabilities of the Nintendo Entertainment System. Right. No, but like one of those things where it's, it's, it's actually just a joke, like the one where you're supposed to get the red crystal and go to this wall and duck. There's no way to figure that out. There is no right, way to right. figure that out. I, I, Which is I, charming in a way. It, it's it, it's fun, but yeah, I, uh, I, I had to learn it by uh, buying a VHS, VHS cassette on uh, how to how to score more points at Nintendo games. And one of them. Oh, that's awesome. So, oh yeah, the word for chain was, uh, is Belmont. Oh, that is a fun one. I love that there's a <laughs> Castlevania reference in Game of Thrones. <laughs> yeah, and that one actually got used uh, several times. Uh, there's probably, oh, you know what? Let me see, what, what is that word? Um, there's one that's after the nickname I have for my little sister. So the word for sibling is, uh, is uh, Dubis, or sorry, Dubis. I, I, I gotta I gotta pronounce this all right, but that that came from um, the nickname I have for my little sister Natalie, which is uh, Dubu. I don't know where I got that uh, nickname from, but that's that's what I call her. <laughs> Did you have to make a conscious effort to make Dothraki and Valerian just completely different languages? Do they relate at all? Uh, no, um, as far as. Um, or at least if let's let's say that you know a song of ice and fire is an actual world um no the two languages aren't related or at the very least are not closely related um if there is some sort of proto world where it's like all the languages in the world are related then yes they'll be distantly related but no they're they're completely unrelated as at least within the past 5 6 7000 years um but um as far as making them different goes, that wasn't ac- no, that wasn't actually too much work. I mean, the 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 way that uh, George Hard Martin had set it up, um, especially with the names, uh, they're just they're just so different from the sound of it and the way that they kind of put together words. Um, it really is something that is more along the lines of of a Latin, where you get these very characteristic. Uh, endings that keep on popping up, uh, both on uh, adjectives, verbs, um, and uh, and nouns. Whereas in Dothraki, kind of like you know, there are some endings depending on the function that will keep uh, occurring, but like pretty much it's not it's not that important. Uh, whereas uh, it's easy to tell, it's easy to look at any word and just look at the ending and tell if it's a word of High Valyrian or not. Um, so at least as far as the sound of it goes, that wasn't too much of a worry. And then as far as the grammar goes, they're kind of opposites in a lot of ways. How so? Well, uh, in Dothraki, it's, it's primarily, um, it's primarily head initial. So the object will come after the verb, um, and adjectives come, uh, uh, after the nouns, uh, and, uh, relative clauses work in the way that we expect them to. Uh, in High Valyrian, it's the opposite of that. So the verb is coming at the end of the sentence um and then relative clauses for example come in front of the noun so uh, let me see if i can do this in english if you wanted to say like uh, um i i saw the man who uh bought an orange you would say that in high valyrian let me think I, i'm going to do this in, in english here um i an orange bought 
man saw. Yeah, that's that. That'd be how you do it. So, or, or, or I, the orange bot, man saw, uh, where uh, the orange bot is actually the relative clause that modifies man. Um, very difficult actually to to translate. It's kind of backwards from the way we do things in English, and it's it's kind of hard to be sure that you're getting it right and that it's actually uh, grammatical in the language that you're using. Aren't you inventing the grammar? Don't you know if you're getting? Who's going to call you out for getting it wrong? You could just say that's that's how this works. Who's, who's, who's going to call me out? Go to my blog. Ugh, geez. <laughs> uh, Is that right? Do you have people that comment about the you misusing grammatical rules that you yourself established? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That, that happens. That's insane. <laughs> of course, you know, because the thing is, you know, I, I set up the rules, and so they have to abide by those rules. Um, but, of course, you know, I am human, and I... <laughs> And I can only proofread so much, so I do make the mis- the occasional mistake. <laughs> have you seen that community grow? I'm sure you have. Um, even since we first spoke, I think we first spoke, you know, soon after season one, between season one and season two anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, are there more people commenting and more people uh, riding your ass about the grammar now? Oh, yeah. So the, the Dothraki community grew very gradually. So, you know, maybe pick up another person every couple of months, uh, ever, ever since the show started. Uh, and people, you know, it still maintained kind of a steady core of followers. But then um, the interest once, uh, once Valyrian got started uh, for season three, and especially after episode four, it just jumped like crazy. It's like everybody, suddenly everybody wants to, wants to talk to me. And there's like all these comments and stuff on the blog. And now it's like, it's kind of hard to keep up with. Um, but, uh, I have seen you a lot more in the media, you know. I, I follow you on Twitter and stuff, and it seems like a lot of people, like you mentioned that CNN thing, um, many, many people got in touch with me to let me know that they heard you on my show and then saw you on, like, the I think it was a, a special feature on HBO. Maybe it was on the DVDs. Yeah. So it seems like it's something people are more interested in than they were even just a year or two ago when we first talked. Isn't that exciting? Yeah, well, it's it's pretty exciting. And I think that a lot of it is due to, because, I mean, even in episodes one through three, it's like, you know, people were really interested. It's like, oh, it's High Valyrian. That was that cool. That's cool. But, I mean, that that scene in episode four where, you know, Daenerys reveals that she speaks High Valyrian and, and she oh does what God. she does. I, that may have been the best the best thing that's happened in the series. It was incredible. I think you might be right. I mean, that was interesting because there, the language is actually a plot point, you know, yeah. because it's revealed that she's been toying with this guy and that she really does speak Valyrian. And I thought the language, uh, you know, the language itself, it, it really sang in that scene. That, that scene could have been the season finale. We're only four yeah. episodes into the season. They could have called it there. No one would have complained. What did you think when you saw it, when you saw Amelia Clark's performance there? I was uh, I was absolutely blown away, and I and I will say truly, it's hard it's hard to impress me because <laughs> uh, I, I I'm I'm such a I'm such a negative Nelly, but uh, that was just it, it totally floored me. Just like a, and even apart from the fact that you know I worked on the show and here are the languages and they're doing stuff and it's cool. It's just like. Me as a general viewer, I was like, my goodness, this is one of the most awesome things I've ever seen. And not only that, I knew what was coming, right? Because I've read the books. Yeah, I, me too, me too. Yeah, I can't even imagine what it would have been like for somebody that genuinely had no idea at all what was coming. I would love to know what it would be like to experience it that way. 
That's a that's a memorable even in the books, even in the books. Yeah. That's a cool part of the very memorable part of the books too. Yeah. That was one of those one of those I think rare cases on Game of Thrones where um the the great big event that happens is something that everybody actually wants to happen. <laughs> right, right. Very rarely does something just purely fun happen on that show. Yeah. Without something miserable happening to offset it. <laughs> The language is also, uh, it's sort of an indirect plot point, too, in that I think the Dothraki was mostly confined to the Daenerys plotline, if not completely confined to the Daenerys plotline. Yeah. The Valerian, it kind of unites all these different people who are spread throughout the world because you see the, uh, what's his name, Bedrick Dondarian? Beric Dondarian, yeah. Beric Dondarian, you see him speaking it, you see Melisandre speaking it. Uh, and in the meanwhile, in the Far East, you see these people speaking it, too. So it, it connects all these different plot lines. Uh, and I think that's kind of sometimes a problem with both the movies and the books is it's a little too sprawling for its own good. And it seems like these people mm. are all in their different worlds. But here on the show, and this is something uh, unique that your language did that you can't really do in the book because the book is all in English. Mm. Uh, your language kind of helps tie those plot lines together. Yeah. And also, I think, gives viewers a sense of uh, a little bit what the world is like, because, you know, you, you get a You get a fairly good sense of that for Westeros. Uh, and, you know, how everybody is, is speaking English. And so you can see how there are distinct regions, but how they kind of form a community. Uh, and the thing that often gets lost is that's basically the role of Valyrian for the other continent. Uh, and that's how those peoples are kind of uh, connected uh, and, and, and speak to one another. Valyrian kind of serves the purpose uh, that English does over on Westeros. And uh, and then, like, as you as you see characters in the West start speaking it, you can see oh, and not only that, there is a connection between these two continents. You know, these these people aren't they're not just completely disparate and, and separated um, entities. There there's kind of like you know a, a commerce here or a shared community. Uh, it's pretty cool. Do you have a preference between your two babies, Dothraki and Valerian? Mm. Is there one that's more fun to work with? Well, I will tell you, it's easier to work with Dothraki. <laughs> That, that may be just because I've spent so much time with it, but like, uh, if I if I have to translate something, it's like I, I go for Dothraki first. That's that's my bread and butter. That's the easiest. Uh, Valyrian is just it's almost too pretty for its own good. Uh, I, so I, I really I really like it, but I almost feel bad for how how pretty it is. <laughs> well, even in written form, I believe it's done in glyphs as opposed to letters. Is that correct? Yes, properly it, it ought to be. Uh, that hasn't come up yet, uh, at least for the show. Yeah, I definitely read that on the wiki. Does that uh, affect the way the language is put together in your mind? Not, uh, not necessarily, but it's something that I have been thinking about. Because uh, if we ever get to the point where I'm allowed to do a writing system for these guys, for the series, you know, it's, that's going to be a monumental task. Um, you know, creating uh, writing systems and creating fonts is something I do. It's something I've, I've got to do on the other show I'm working on, Defiance. So I'm going to bring that up. Yeah, oh, I'm getting cool. there. Yeah, but so for, for High Valyrian proper, my sense is that, and I don't mean, and when I say this, I don't mean stylistically. So I'm going to say it, and you, immediately an image is going to pop in your mind, but I don't think that. I, I think that High Valyrian is going to be something close to um, Egyptian hieroglyphs. And, you know, not necessarily in the sense that um, you can actually see the drawings and figure out what they mean, but in the sense that... Um, Is that how hieroglyphs work? Like, if I see a picture of an alligator, that means alligator? Not necessarily. 
because okay. this is actually how the system works in, in Egyptian. They have an alphabet that's a part of it. So like, you know, the thing that looks like a foot, it can actually stand for the consonant B. Uh, and the thing that looks like um, a ball with lines on it, I don't know what it's supposed to be, it actually stands for the consonant H. And so you can use this alphabet, but then there's also glyphs that stand for two sounds in a row, uh, glyphs for, uh, that stand for three sounds in a row, and also glyphs that are purely pictures. And so, in fact, you can actually use uh, the alphabetic glyphs to stand for the word that they are. Uh, sometimes they're the same word, sometimes they're not. Um, and what will end up happening is when you have a word spelled out, like the word, like if you want to spell out um, I love, you know, so as in love, and then the subject is first person. Actually, I love you would be Hebeka, okay, uh, or Marika. Okay, um, so what you would do is there's this glyph that looks like a plow and stands for MR, but then you actually do write an R next to it because you just need to know that that is actually what it's standing for. And then below that would probably be double reads. Uh, which would be standing for the first person subject. And then you'd probably have the pot glyph that, that would stand for the K and then probably an albatross below that, which would be the ah. And then you actually have to might put a, you might put a little person on the end there to indicate that it's, you know, a human being say that. And so um, it's not like it, you just look at it and it spells out the word. It's also not like you look at it and it means what it looks like it means. It's a combination of all those factors together. And so it's my feeling that that's probably something like what High Valyrian would be. And it would be a very large and very complex system, uh, but one I would certainly like to tackle. Are there any other languages or any other linguistic A Song of Ice and Fire challenges you're looking to overcome? Uh, well, uh, let's see. Well, um, I'd, love to, I'd love to give Bravosi a crack. It will definitely be um, related to... Uh, it, you know, it's an, it's it's one of those languages that was descended from uh, High Valyrian, but it'll be descended in a different way from the Low Valyrian that's spoken in Slaver's Bay would be. Uh, it would be interesting to look at the old tongue that's uh, that's spoken by, I think, the, the giants still speak it uh, over there. That, that might be interesting to tackle. Were there any phrases this season in the scripts that came up that gave you, uh, that were particularly challenging? Uh, well, I, I remember once, it was for the, the last episode that I just saw, so that was episode seven. Uh, they asked me to just come up with uh, an insult for this guy to mutter as he was walking away. and just said, you know, do whatever you want. <laughs> that was filthy. I, I couldn't even say it. It was so dirty. But... <laughs> um, is it subtitled when we see it? No, it's not. So we, we don't even know what it means. No, it's that dirty. So it's like only you will shudder when you hear it. Yeah. <laughs> Can you tell us what it means? Uh, this podcast is marked as explicit. The fellow that is walking away refers to, uh, refers to Daenerys as a very particular type of prostitute, um, one that would primarily work with uh, uh, perhaps the outdoor end of the um, intercourse process, if I could put that as vaguely as possible. All right, I think I can take that apart. And she also indi- he also indicates that her, that her uh, her skin is probably not as cleanly as it ought to be. So that's a little that's a little something we, we, you know, listeners of the show and you, we can all uh, we can all share that moment together. Yeah. <laughs> Are you ready for my favorite part of the show? Translating phrases that people submit into Game of Thrones languages. <laughs> yeah, prepare to uh, prepare to prepare to be disappointed. <laughs> well. 
<laughs> I'll see you what know, I can do. You know, you've always pulled it together in the past. All right. And I'm excited to see what you can do. Um, I put it on my Facebook page, and I said, what do you guys want to hear translated in Valerian? And the number one answer was the phrase, I am the goddamn Batman. I am the goddamn Batman. Oh, my God. How would you say that in Valerian? Uh, in high Valerian, I don't think I, I could say it. I, there isn't a word for bat. Um, but uh, Yeah, once. bats don't really come up in uh, Westeros. No, they don't, but I suppose they ought to. Maybe yeah. there's a dark knight or uh, a great detective. Actually, you could do dark knight, couldn't you? Hold on. Let, let me... Uh, let me give me some give me a space to write here just a second uh good call though on that so knight of course is uh if i'm remembering right azantis yes yes it is uh azantis okay uh and now let's find the word for dark uh okay now we need the adjective where is the adjective? Yes. So, okay. Oh, okay. Stick with me a second. I have to. I have to conjugate this adjective appropriately. So, Azantis is solar, and so that is the okay. Oh, good, good, good. Okay. Good. And now we need some sort of an intensifier. Wait a minute. Damn. Oh, I thought I had that word. All right, hold on. Let's see if I got it over here. I'm just throwing this out there. Maybe Batman could be Reuben. <laughs> Maybe Bat can be Reuben, but right now I'm I'm going with Dark Knight because that is that is pretty that is pretty cool. Uh, um, let's see. Okay, I am the. How about um, you know what? Oh, let's 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 see if we can do this uh, from Dragon. Or, 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 oh, ooh, 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 okay, 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 hold on, hold on, hold on. All right, so I have something for you. We'll see if you, uh, we'll see if you like it and if, and if the folks on Facebook would like it. All right, you ready? Yeah, hit me. Okay. Dracaro Azanti Zobriexan. I'm a little scared. <laughs> fear struck into my heart right now. And that is, I am... I, I am basically I am the of the dragon fire dark knight. I'd say that's pretty close. That is pretty <laughs> close. That is close. However, I, I do think that there I do think that there should be a word uh, for for bat that perhaps comes from Rubin. So I'll take it. I'll take it. Rubina. Rubina. Yes, and then we could even create a word that it's like a man that comes from that. All right, this, this is, it's it's on my to-do list. It's on my to-do excellent, list. I excellent. I like that. And I'm, I'm only going to throw one more at you because it's a long one. But I, I really, it's a, it's really, this quote really speaks to me. The quote is, Marge, this may be hard to believe, but I'm trapped inside two vending machines. <laughs> And no, there's there's no way. There's Obviously no way. Vending machines, but maybe like, I don't know, shopping cart, bazaar cart. You know. Let me figure out what to do with Marge first of all. So what? what how? What's a? How, what's a good word? How? What? What would be a good way to say Marge? 
in in high valerian marcia marcia I mean, I don't know anything about High Valerian specifically that you haven't told me in the past half hour or so, so I'm not sure. But I think you could just leave it as Marge, couldn't you? Like, if oh. I met someone uh, if I met someone in France, they, they'd just call me Jeff, right? Y- yes, but, I mean, come on. We, we, we have to put it in the vocative, see? Yeah, we got to have a little bit of fun with it. You're right. So, okay, Marge's. Marge's. Okay, uh, I am... Okay, uh, uh, let's see. I don't even know. Oh, wait. Mm, oh. Oh, okay. So I do have a. Mm, well, it's not. Okay, yeah, okay. So I, I do have a word for believe. Let's, let's, let's do this part first. Okay. So, Marge. Okay. And it's going to be. Let's see. Let, let's, let's go ahead and put that in the future tense and just avoid that whole. Uh, kettle of fish Pasil, Pasil. Uh, okay it, it, it's difficult to use this language Pasile. Um, okay oh right but it's the subjunctive okay so Pasilo Davor okay you not okay and then we need um, and then uh, what is, uh, I, I'm asking you here, what's the accusative for the first person singular pronoun? You got oh that off the top God. of your head? I think, I think that was in Valerian. <laughs> Let me see if I, I've remembered my word for however correctly. I am, however, I am at, <laughs> okay, two vending machines. So first the word for two is... Lanta. Okay. And now we need uh, some sort of a participle. Liraros. Liraros. Okay. All right. I am actually getting something for you. Just let me uh, decline these words appropriately. Oh, and let's... Uh, here we go. Yes. All right. Pejorative. Okay. I have constructed something that is remotely, potentially, somewhat, theoretically close to what you have asked for. Homer could use this to apologize if Marge spoke high Valyrian. Okay, are you ready? Yeah. All right, here we go. Margis, avipasilo daor in lanti liorarot crivilan. It doesn't make me laugh quite the same way for some reason. No, no, it sounds much too proper. But uh, what he has said here is something to the effect of this. Marge... You will not believe me, but I am wrongly placed with respect to two selling machines or objects. And you didn't think you'd be able to translate that. (laughs) No, I did not. (laughs) It's ridiculous. I love it. Uh, you know, the other thing I got to ask you about, which you, you briefly alluded to, is this other show, Defiance. I mentioned that you were going to come back onto this podcast, and I got more than a few comments like, oh, you got to ask them about Defiance. What's going on Defiance? I have not had a chance to check the show out myself. What is this show about, and what are you doing for it? All right, so Defiance is about uh, several different groups of aliens that— I like li- it. I like it. All right, they lived in a galaxy far, far away and discovered that— their, uh, their sun was going to explode. Their entire solar system was going to be wiped out, or at least uh, they would. And so they built these gigantic ships 
uh, to rescue at least a portion of their population, not all of it, but a, a goodly number of them, and go to an, an uninhabited planet, which they would terraform and then live on. Uh, they located this planet, they got into the ships, and they go off, and they go into kind of hypersleep, and uh, however many years later, I think it was like 5,000 years later, they arrive on Earth in the year 2013 and discover that the planet is not at all uninhabited. So they didn't come to conquer. There, there's negotiations that take place. And little by little, some of the aliens are coming to settle on Earth when suddenly there's a cataclysmic event. All of their ships, or a good portion of their ships in space, explode, uh, killing millions of them. There's a huge war on Earth that lasts 30 long years. And then at some point in time, people just get weary of this. And so the humans and the aliens pull together to kind of rebuild their existence since they're now stuck on Earth together. And Defiance picks up after that war has concluded. And what are you doing for the show? Are they, uh, do the aliens all have different languages? The aliens all have different languages. Yes, they so do. So how many languages are there? Uh, well, in theory, there should be at least uh, seven. Um, but as it happens, the ones that we end up hearing the most on the show, there are only the two races, uh, these, the, the Castathans and the Arathians. So each of them have a full language. And you hear lots of the language on the show. And then in, a, in addition to uh, the language, I also created writing systems for, uh, for the aliens that um, it appears in signage throughout the show. Uh, it, it appears just like in bits and places it's been used in advertising. It's really, really cool. So you currently are the master, I don't know exactly what, the architect of four actively developed uh, artificial languages. Is it difficult to keep those straight in your head? Uh, it's not actually difficult to keep them straight, but the thing that's difficult for me, or the most difficult for me, is remembering when I have coined a term and when I haven't. So, like, uh, for, for example, um, here I was actually, like, when I was just doing this translation for you, I was uh, quite surprised um, that I didn't have something to cover being inside of something else. Because I remembered having coined that. But what I remembered was I remembered coining it for a different language. Right. <laughs> and that, that happens a lot, where usually the end result of it is I just get ticked off at myself, thinking, why didn't I coin this word? Um, and, then I, and then I berate myself, and then I go and coin it. And Defiance is also, correct me if I'm wrong, it's a video game, too. Like, they're, they're doing the, that, not that TV shows haven't had video right. games before, but they're, they're developing both in tandem actively. Are you working on the video game, too? Uh, I'm not working on the video game. The video game actually predated the show, but uh, yeah, it's it's an MMO and uh, it, it's an MMO and a shooter. And what happened was it went live a couple of weeks before the show debuted, and uh, the main characters on the show actually came from the game, which takes place in the same universe but in a different part of the country. Oh, by the way, the, the show takes place in former St. Louis. The town has been renamed Defiance, and the video game takes place in San Francisco. Um, so, you know, it's not the, it's not like, you know, the same action, but characters keep crossing back and forth. Uh, so for example, from the last episode of Defiance, uh, one of the characters that started on the show just left the show and is actually going to go back to the game and players are going to have, uh, quest lines that involve her for a little bit. That's cool. That's like a 
new thing too that's never been tried. Yeah, it's it's it was a pretty ambitious project, and uh, you know it, there have been bumps along the way, but they're they're getting better and better with it. And uh, you know, I, I think like uh, from a fan's perspective, like this is the kind of thing that I think is very cool, and that I hope uh, uh, you know other shows or other enterprises far in the future try to do this type of thing. Because, uh, you know, that's, that's the type of interaction that's cool, you know? Yeah, and I think that's, like, the n- new type of idea, the type of idea, that's all, yeah. that's going to, that it's going to take to stand out in, like, the increasingly fragmented media landscape. Yes, indeed, and then, you know, Amazon Prime, Netflix, etc. <laughs> of course, of course. Uh, <laughs> but it sounds like, in the meantime, you have made a nice little career for yourself as the go-to artificial language guy for TV shows. Uh, yeah, for the moment, uh, for the moment, I seem to be doing all right, <laughs> and I'm having a heck of a lot of fun. Well, you know, I said this last time you were on the show, but it's true, and I think about it all the time. Uh, you know, your contribution to Game of Thrones and your contribution to Defiance, I think it's fair to say, and I, I hope you won't take this as an insult, most people won't even register it. Most people won't realize that they're not just making up gobbledygook every time they see it on a conscious mm. level, but it's one of the many, many details that are so deep and so well thought out and all those details add up to make those shows so immersive and you're working on what is i think probably the best show on tv right now and you're just doing this cool little corner of it just making it cool in a way things have never been cool before and i love it and it's great and i want you to keep doing it all right well for you i shall i hope you i hope you get to work on that writing language because i need an excuse to get you back soon all right yeah anytime man anytime That is it for this week's Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin Game of Thrones 2-for-1 special. Not enough Game of Thrones for you? Well, guess what? Next week, I'm off. All right, fine, fair enough. The week after that, the Game of Thrones finale airs. I will be back with another Game of Thrones episode. That's right, three Game of Thrones episodes for the price of two. This time, I'm going to be talking to John Gabris. Uh, I talked to John after the first season of Game of Thrones. I talked to him after the second season of Game of Thrones. And guess what we're going to be doing in two weeks? We are going to be talking about the third season of Game of Thrones. Uh, So this week, we kind of circled around it. But next episode, we are going to specifically zero in on what we saw this season. That episode will be up two days after the finale airs. So you're going to want to stay on top of that. Uh, Though I'm sure most of you are already planning that if you are still listening to this podcast. I'm going to try something new here in the outro. I want to try something called Alumni Corner, where we kind of check in on some past Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin show guests, because some of them uh, are still doing amazing things. In fact, you might say, after their appearance on the Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin show, they excelled and started doing even more amazing things. So let's talk about some of them. First of all, the very first Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin show guest. Let's go all the way back to episode one. Peter Berkman from the band Anamanaguchi. I will eternally, I saw him recently and I let him know, and I'm now letting all you know, I will be eternally grateful to Peter for being the very first guest on this show. Anamanaguchi, the 8-bit rock band, has a new album out called Endless Fantasy. It is awesome. Go download it. Also want to mention that Alan Seppenwall, the TV critic who was on the Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin show back in December when he was on the show, I gushed a great deal about his book, The Revolution Was Televised, uh, which is uh, one of my favorite books I read last year. 
It's a book about uh, the TV shows that kind of changed the way we watch TV shows. And it's all the shows I always talk about here. Buffy, Lost, uh, The Sopranos, Deadwood. It's a great book. Uh, it's a great episode if you missed it. Go back and listen to that one. And the book uh, is now out in paperback, and it is much wider distribution uh, than it did before. So congratulations, Alan, and everyone else who is not Alan. Go check out that book. also want to talk about Chris Gethard. Chris Gethard isn't exactly doing anything uh, new that he wasn't doing when we talked last time. He's still doing the Chris Gethard show, his public access show, but he is doing it at another level. That show is amazing. And the past few weeks, he's had amazing guests. He had Amy Poehler, he had Zach Alphanakis, and you've seen Zach Alphanakis on a lot of talk shows, but only on the Chris Gethard show will you see him cutting a stranger's hair uh, for fun. So the Chris Gethard show, check that out if you haven't. Check it out if you haven't watched in a while. Chris has really turned it up. That show is the best. And finally, speaking of talk shows, I want to mention Pete Holmes, who was on episode 40-something of this uh, podcast. And as his own podcast, you made it weird, and is going to have a talk show on TBS in the fall, which is extremely exciting. Uh, his Comedy Central special, Nice Try the Devil, just aired. And, uh, you know, for years, both myself and most of the people I work with at College Humor, you know, we've known that Pete Holmes is the funniest, and it's so exciting to see that everyone else is catching on to his special, Nice Try the Devil. Check it out. And uh, that is not the last Comedy Central special we're going to be plugging in Alumni Corner. Kumail Nanjiani, who has been on the show uh, and has his own podcast, The Indoor Kids, he's got a Comedy Central special coming out. Jared Logan, who is on both Video Game Debate uh, Club episodes of this podcast, he was on the Star Trek Catan Bleep Loop, a very special episode. He's got a Comedy Central special coming out. So... Lots of fun over in the alumni corner. I like this segment. I think this one's going to stick around. Me? You want to know what I'm up to? Follow me on Twitter, where I'm at Jeff Rubin Show, on my Tumblr at jeffrubinjeffrubin.com, on my Facebook fan page, or at jeffrubinjeffrubinshow.com, where you can listen to uh, any episode of the show going all the way back to episode one with Pete and Anamanaguchi. That is it for this week. Next week, I am off. Two weeks from now, Game of Thrones. I'll see you there. But for now, 